Welcome back to From Start to Scale with Alex Newman, where founders, CEOs, sales leaders, investors, and the best of the best share their strategies and tactics, how they scaled their business and broke through the next level. Hear what worked and what didn't so you can avoid critical mistakes and scale your business. Now let's get into it. Today's guest is Jen Henderson, founder and CEO of Tilt, a company revolutionizing employee leave in the workplace. Tilt SaaS platform creates a human experience through technology to support every aspect of the leave of absence. They've raised around $17 million and are off and running. She spent 15 years in corporate America prior to founding Tilt in a variety of different operational roles. Jen, excited to have you here. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Alex. So I'm excited to dig in because I, I really love this story of Tilt and I, I'm excited to kind of share some of the learnings that, that you have. But where I'd love to get started is right around, like, how did you actually come up with this idea of a system for managing leave? Mm -hmm. And how did you know that it just was not just an idea and actually like you had something here? Yeah, the origin story of Tilt, not that unique to some of the other founders you talk with in that it was completely born out of personal experience. So as you mentioned, 15 years in corporate America, loved everything about it, no desire to jump out of that traditional workforce. And I also went through seven years of in vitro with my husband trying to get pregnant, which I could not control, which led to doubling down on my career, which I very much could control. So I got very accustomed to the top of the nine box, very accustomed to promoting every two years every stretch assignment sent my way, et cetera. And then we got lucky and I got pregnant. And as soon as I announced that I was expecting, all of those opportunities stopped. I stopped getting the stretch assignments. I stopped getting the invitations to the table. So that was my first lived experience that something was wrong. But honestly, after that journey to pregnancy, I was elated to just be expecting. So I turned the other cheek and got back on the proverbial horse. Five years later, different company, different stage of my career. I announced I was expecting with my second and I actually had a promotion rescinded. So that was the straw that broke the camel's back for me. Yes, I sought counsel. Yes, very illegal. But I didn't. I wasn't willing to sign a release, which was essentially what was offered to me to what I saw to be hush money, not be able to talk about what had happened to me and have it just go away. So I walked away from pursuing legal action. I walked away from my career of almost two decades and the very comfortable paycheck that comes with that. And I jumped into this world of entrepreneurship. And to answer your question more directly, I did not know the solution. I just knew I was very pissed off. And that was a fuel that really, even to this day, five and a half years later, continues to get me out of bed in the morning and navigate the, the highs and the lows. And how it matriculated into leave is that I, I kept learning that what happened to me was not unique and it was very pervasive. And it really kept coming back to a leave of absence being either a career derailer implicit or explicit bias, sometimes really taking women predominantly out of the workforce for the rest of their lives. I remember very distinctly, I was sitting in a, in a workshop and I had the facilitator say, did you know that if women opt out of the workforce for anything more than two years, they suffer a 30 to 40% earning reduction over their lifetime. And I distinctly remember, I remember where I was sitting, I remember the room and my hand shot up and I said, can you please say that again and cite your source? And she did. And that for me was just completely inexcusable and completely unjustified. So yeah. here we are today, revolutionizing leave, what I believe to be the impetus of where all of this goes wrong. So where, so now that you're, you're, you're pissed off, you have this problem, you have, you are passionate about this. Mm -hmm. It is clearly this massive problem. You are not the only one here. How did you go from that to, Hey, I have a business here. Yeah. 
So how did we know we had something? Well, we really experienced in the early years this phenomenon of double selling. So before COVID, believe it or not, we were entering these conversations with buyers and we first had to explain why this was such a significant problem. And then we had to explain why we were the solution to fix it. And it was a slog. And I took the really bad advice that you should be your company's first salesperson. And I don't give that advice now. I, I don't think that it's the right way to go. I would do that differently. But it was an interesting experience to learn what that double selling actually looked and felt like. And then, this is late 2019, March 2020, quite literally overnight, we were in a war room when legislation was written impacting COVID-19 related leaves. And that truly was the turning point. We had a small but mighty customer portfolio at that time. But from that moment on, it all of a sudden, the first swath of that double selling evaporated. Everybody understood why leave was a problem and so complex and so important. So we are very lucky to have benefited from the tailwinds of the global pandemic. That's interesting because I've never heard it called that before, but it's very much of the beginning is, is hey, I have to... I'm creating this category. I have to educate you and then I have to sell you. So I can't even sell you. I actually have to educate you, which makes it extremely challenging. I've, I've done that before. So it, it's quite, quite difficult. Talk a little bit more about, cause you touched on it around founder led selling and you wanted to essentially hire someone, a, a salesperson sooner. Talk a little bit more about like what your opinion is about that and, and what your experience is and, and, and why. Well, not only did I get the advice, but I also didn't have a choice. We were bootstrapped for the first two and a half years. So I had literally no money in the bank to be able to woo someone over, even from a, a purely you know, variable comp standpoint. So I really had to do what I had to do in terms of being founder led in the selling strategy. But again, now that I can look back, I had never sat in a seat that was selling in any way, shape or form. You can argue operational roles in some way, shape or form are selling in that you galvanize teams and you rally everyone around a common goal, but truly yeah. selling and get people through the stages of a funnel was completely new to me. So I now have seen with the amazing sales engine team that we have, what sales looks like. It's an art and a science and a craft that I am incredibly in awe of. And what really was hindered in terms of the early stage selling because <laughs> I didn't know what I was doing. Now I can look back and say, man, if I had somebody in that seat that knew sure. what they were doing, we would have grown faster in the early couple of quarters. So how, when you first got started, what were you doing? Were you just reaching out to HR departments? Like you yeah. just kind of randomly pick people that you knew just kind of from your, your corporate experience? Like how did you... Like, I, I, I get that COVID helped you a lot, but like, how did you even like go, hey, I've been doing this for two years, let's keep going. <laughs> yeah, I was so naive, truly. I thought, sure, I'm just gonna tap my network. I had a, a large swath of corporate America, people leaders and HR leaders. Surely they'll just see what I see and they'll buy us. You know, at this time they, you know, they say, if you're not embarrassed by your first version of your product, you probably waited too long. Oh, we didn't wait too long. I was very embarrassed by that first version, but that's exactly what I did. I knocked on the doors of the people that I knew, but because I came from fortune 500 land, these were fortune 500 CHROs and CPOs. And they were looking at me as this, I mean, we didn't have a lick of dollar in revenue as an untried, untested, unverified product and said, you've got to go through all these stages that I was trying to leapfrog. So they gave right. me great input on how to continue to evolve the product and 
For instance, we were focusing very singularly on parental in the early days, and a CHRO of Fortune 500 said, you can't leave my other leaves held together by duct tape and Band-Aids. You have to fix all of my leaves or I will never buy this product. So again, really critical feedback at the early days, but there was no way they were going to buy anything at that point in time. Yeah. So I was able to swim downstream pretty dramatically, get some pilots in some local universities, and approach what my network consisted of a little bit differently. And most of it was all free and it was all just getting testimonials and, and case studies and data. Yeah. So you, you had been going through this for the, for about two years before COVID hit. Mm -hmm. What did, what did the team initially kind of look like before that, that pop happened? Like, did you have, I mean, was yeah. it equal weight in between like sales, marketing, ops, engineering? Like what, what did the team ultimately look like? It was me for the first year to year and a half, I would say, because if you remember that impetus that had me jump out of corporate America was when I announced I was expecting. So I actually had my daughter and filed the LLC paperwork for me, certificate of incorporation four months after she was born. So okay. it was a lot of baby carrier in me going to anything I could in terms of meetings and, and meet and greets and workshops. And then about a year and a half in, I had a very organic group of four of us that one was an expat from Australia who to this day remains incredibly fired up about how the United States is so painfully behind the rest of the industrialized world. She was just flat out pissed and joined very early and is still with us to this day. She's my number two employee. Another was just a young out of college individual who had weekends free and was willing to come help us with things like social and marketing and such. And then a yeah. fourth was my cousin actually, who had some business expertise. And we just, every Saturday sat on my patio, I made muffins and we figured <laughs> out what we needed to do. And that was about a year yeah. that we did that. That's it. So how long did it take to move into like, Hey, we're getting customers. We're getting consistent customers. Yeah. Like what, what was that initial sales process to, Hey, I think we, I think we're starting to like figure out this like mini machine. Yeah. We, I will never forget driving to target when I got the email that we had our first contract signed and my kids in the backseat and I screamed, it's That's just awesome. one of those moments that are burned in your brain. And that first contract was. In, in an individual, not of my network, not any strings tied or, or backdoor conversations, but it was a, a people operations leader who really got it. She had had a bad leave experience. She completely understood the opportunity to do it better. And she took a chance is, is the long and the short of it. Very discounted contract price, but she joined as our first paying customer and then the next five closely thereafter. And then we just went directly sales outbound as soon as I hired my very first sales professional. So talk to me a, a little bit about that. So I, yeah. I, get, I get why you're thinking, hey, I don't have a ton of a sales experience. I've never done it before. I, I, yep. I agree with you that it, you know, it, it made more sense to hire somebody at that time. You get to this person that you now decide to hire. What, what did, what did this person look like? Like, how did you go through the hiring experience? What, like, who did you hire? Why did you hire this person versus others? I would imagine that that is a, in your mind at the time, like just an absolute crucial hire that you have to get right. I always feel really bad when I get this question and it is the number one question I get from other entrepreneurs who are coming up through their growth because it's not replicatable. Meaning 
My very first sales hire came to me. She was selling for a competitor and I can't make this up. There's only three of us that swim in this pool. So the pool is pretty small. She came to me from a competitor and cold outbound me and said, Hey, I lost a deal to you. I did some research. I live 20 minutes down the road and the competitor's based in California. She's here in Colorado. I live 20 minutes down the road. It's not working out with this competitor. I don't feel very supported. If you're willing, I'd love to have a conversation. And I didn't have any JD. I didn't have any search out there. I had, again, I had no money. So I took a cup of coffee with somebody that I thought, oh, at least I'll get some competitive intel. And the rest is pretty much history. She was so experienced in terms of selling B2B SaaS. She was so passionate about the problem because she'd also experienced the bad leave experience. She at the time was expecting, and that has, we've, we've hired people expecting probably five or six times over now. So that's just never been an issue for us, but unfortunately for people, that's not something that's an option. So it was just this perfect synergy of right place, the right time. And we just celebrated her three-year anniversary this last Monday. And I pulled up the email to share with my team. And I said, let this be a lesson. Take the cold outreach, take the cup of coffee, because you just never know. Yep. It's it's funny that you say that because it it's not replicable, but I've actually heard the same story quite a few times where the founder and founder CEO received some type of inbound or was trying to be sold something and mm-hmm. that person ends up becoming their salesperson or their first sales or first or second salesperson. So I thought that that's a that's a kind of a, a funny story that that's how it worked out. So talk to me a little bit about the kind of the next step. So you you have your first salesperson on board, tons of Mm -hmm. of B2B SaaS experience. Mm -hmm. Where where, where do we go from here? Like, what are the next steps to go from, hey, we have a handful of clients to, you know, like this thing's kind of off and running and we can start to go raise money? Yeah, well, she brought her toolkit, essentially, of understanding what does outbound mechanics need to look like? Like, what are the campaigns? How do we measure success? What are the different approaches? We got very granular with our target market identification and our ICP. We played around with some different types of copy. We basically built the engine V1 because she didn't inherit much. We didn't hand her many more deals than maybe 10 in HubSpot and said, here you go, good luck. And Uh, So she really had a a clean slate to start from. And again, having had the experience that she had, she knew how to start somewhere. And those cold outbounds got us to our first 1.5 million. It was direct selling 100%, no magic formula. We just pounded the pavement and we, we did that cold outbound. And she brought in one salesperson not long after she started, because again, she was expecting. So we needed someone to step in for her. And the two of them... Nothing but cold outbound, like I said, for the first 1.5 million. And what did that outbound look like? Was that calls, emails? Like what, what, what exactly was it that is this quote unquote outbound engine? All emails. All emails. All emails, sign up for a demo, put into the funnel and nurtured through all the, the different stages. And how did you, let me, let me go with this way. What was your initial hypothesis of who the buyer was and who did it end up becoming? Was it the same or how many times did it change? Our initial hypothesis is some version of an HR leader, and that has stayed pretty strong and true. However, there's been a massive, I would say, 
upheaval in the world of people operations and HR as this new future of work has become very noisy and the remote work phenomenon and all the types of things. So our buyer has been a very, I would say, high fidelity mover in their companies right now. So they're getting different seats at different tables. They're getting different budgets. They're, they're essentially just really blowing it back up and putting it together again, which we could not be more thrilled about. HR as an industry really needs some shaking up and it, we're seeing that happen. So our buyer has remained consistent in that the job that needs to be done, but their titles and where they're sitting on the bus and all those things continues to be a pretty high fidelity space right now. That's interesting. Did, were you, is it like, did you pick a specific industry? Did you pick a specific like size of company? I mean, I would imagine you could go as high of a business as you want, right? You could pick like, you know, the chases and the sales forces and these giant public companies, you could pick make market. Like how did you figure out how to get started to get traction? Because yeah. HR probably gets inundated with buy this and buy this and buy this other thing. Yes. We hyper-targeted the states that had passed a paid leave program, which was just a handful at that time, and even more so California, because California had done paid leave for the longest in the union, so they had the most reps and the most experience. So the organizations there, I hypothesis was, the organizations there are the most educated on the problem, and we also went after tech companies, deeper pockets, more progressive in people practices, typically a first mover advantage. So we were really, really surgical in that first cold outbound. And to this day, that is the lion's share of our portfolio. So it was a very successful ICP identification yeah. and continues to be. However, to your point, leave happens everywhere. So while in theory, at least I would have thought, great, we can go fish in all the markets and we can have all the ICPs. That's now, as I know, not the smartest way to go about selling. So how we've continued to expand our marketing has been, and our sales has been very similar of, okay, well, now we have more PFL states that have passed this legislation. And now we have this remote workforce where people are actually beholden to where they're getting the work done as to the paid leave laws that they're having to apply for. So we're still matching that same rigor of why would these buyers be most motivated in these different markets, industries, segments, et cetera, as we continue to expand that target market. And again, that's really helped with our open rate and our demo and our conversion and all of those metrics that we watch like a hawk. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting how, I mean, it, it makes sense that, you know, it's one of those things where it's, once you know the answer, it's really obvious is if you pick those states and that's, that's interesting how you hypothesize that. And then you actually got it right, which is, which is mm -hmm. cool. How did you talk a little bit about this messaging? Because I feel like there's a lot of buzzwords. There's a lot of jargon that, it, especially from, from yourself coming from that space where it's like easy to kind of throw that out. Yeah. When, when, when people here leave, they, they can kind of decipher that in a bunch of different ways and definitions. Like, how did you figure out, like, what is the right messaging to use? Well, I think it's still a work in progress, right? It's, it's that art and science that so we continue to monitor the copy and the campaigns every sprint that we execute. But I will say a really strong acceleration in that space is when we actually went through Techstars. So we went through the first workforce development cohort of Techstars. And we got partnered with a sales coach who was absolutely emphatic on speaking the language of our buyers 
and talking about the problem that they're experiencing, not our solution. So we got really, really good at using a common language. And to this day, we use the common language of what these amazing HR professionals and people ops leaders are struggling with every single day and creating that relatability and connection point through the copy way before we talk about how we're going to solve it and make it better for them. So that was a very big turning point and aha moment for me of how we get above the noise because they are absolutely inundated to your point is to freaking connect with them. These are humans that are legit struggling. And this problem that we're solving being leave of absence is such an unpopular function of the HR world. They hate it. And we get that. We understand why. So we wanted to show that empathy and that relatability. And to this day, we we lead with that first. And it's real and it's authentic because our heart goes out to them. It's not easy to navigate. It's not easy. When you think about the specifics of that, like when I hear that, and that's that's something that I teach to my own clients. And But I'm curious, how did you actually do it? Because it's one thing for me to say, well, just say the, you know, say the words that your customers say, say, say the stories or how to describe, how did you figure out what it actually was in order to be able to update it? Again, I think that's still something that we do, Lee, in being almost social scientists of the buyers and listening between the lines and inferring what's not being said and asking a lot of questions and that's not always possible. I mean, our sales team has 30 minutes, right? In a typical first demo, but now with our marketing team and some of the genius work that they're doing, there's this ear to the ground that I'm witnessing in terms of really listening and absorbing that space in those conversations. And that in terms of a tactical or an application of what that looks like, I think there's a lot of AB testing out there, right? Like let's, let's see which message hits. I think there's a tremendous amount of value to customer advocacy groups or some sort of an advisory board of what do you think about this and kind of testing that out. And we've done that since the get, so that's been incredibly valuable to us. But we don't have any set it and forget it. Like we are very full intentionally in continuing to listen and iterate and meet our buyers where they're at. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's... It's one of those things where you, you can't really solve a problem that someone's not asking you to solve. So Absolutely. if you talk in their language, they're going to kind of slowly kind of either opt in or, or opt out, and then you can go from there. And I will say the only other component to that that was an early learning is I would love to say my hypothesis that altruism sells, meaning doing leave better It's just a good thing to do human being and all the research and data on some of the impacts on the motherhood penalty that I referenced or shoot, even like early childhood development and how important it is to have parents there in the early days. All of that is not getting contracts signed. It didn't in the early days and it doesn't today. So my understanding again, early on that altruism is great and it's in the top three value props of doing it right because it's the right thing to do for your employees but the compliance component of what we do and the ensuring that you're abiding by the law and paying correctly and filing the right forms, that gets the contract signed. And that's absolutely the pointy end of our spear and has been for five years. No, that's, it's really interesting when you say that because so often it's a, well, this is what they should do. And this is the right, right move to make. And there's no reason yeah. why so-and-so shouldn't buy you know, our product or our solution. 
Yeah. But it's fluffy, right? It's soft. And it's like, if we're having this conversation, yeah, of course, that makes sense. But what moves yeah. the needle is, if I'm out of compliance, I have to pay you how much? And yeah. so that's the thing that like gets everybody to rally around. And then kind of the the nice, hey, this is a good human thing to do is like the, almost a cherry on top. Yeah. And again, I, I was in operations for two decades. I understand P&Ls. I understand HR is typically the cost center that gets whacked the first. So I hold us very accountable to showing not only ROI, but what are the cost savings, not direct, but dotted lines with the reduction in turnover, the reduction in litigation risk, the increase in your reputational impact, like all of those components that are monetarily quantifiable, we yeah. have to give our buyers and we, we have to provide them with that internal advocacy. And I'm very explicit that that's our Trojan horse all day long. I will give you those numbers and we will give you the, the investment ROI. And that means we get to get in and do our magic, which is taking care of these humans, which, which is allowing them to experience a real life event supported and understanding what's available and not stress inducing. So I will Trojan horse the shit out of this as long as I need to, to just get us in and help people. And that's really the thing because it's not just a tech company and you're not just a CEO founder and raising venture capital. Like this is truly, truly helping people at the end of yeah. the day. And I think that's what makes it so sticky. Yeah. It, it's, it's pretty amazing to see the stories and, to rally the 85 tilters around the US around those those impacts because they're real and, and they're frequent, which yeah. is a hell of an elixir for us. Talk to me a little bit about how so you're you're starting to grow and your your sales hire is this is this happening before or after or I guess before or during COVID that you made this first sales hire? Right before March twenty twenty. All right. So there's a little bit of luck there, which is, yep. which is because we obviously we didn't know COVID was happening. So yep. COVID starts to happen. Like what, what is the result of this, this wave? Are you starting to receive outbound or excuse me, inbound? Are you like, when did you start hiring marketing? Like how, how did all of a sudden it goes, Hey, we got that first million and a half bootstrapped fighting yep. tooth and nail boots on the ground type of thing. And all of a sudden it's like, bam, COVID happens. And then what happens? Yeah. So COVID, March 2020, again, war room legislation written, our inbounds took a complete 180. We had demos that weren't, we, we couldn't draw a line into where they came from. Like we, we just didn't know where all of that interest originated, except to know that this legislation was causing people panic, understandably. I mean, the ink wasn't even dry on this legislation when we were having these demos. We have the significant competitive advantage that my COO who was our third hire is a labor and employment attorney. So how this impacted le yeah, legally these laws was a domain expertise we had in-house from the get. So we were able to build the technology through that lens really from day one. So those inbounds and snowball effect from March, 2020 was, I would say more of a natural, it's not probably helpful to your listeners, but there was a compounding interest as COVID legislation as stay at home orders became everywhere, became pervasive and all the things and employers were flailing and budgets went out the window. So employers 
We're just trying to figure out what do I need to do? What is the required of me? How do I do it? And that's how we positioned ourselves, right? We had COVID campaigns. We put a tremendous amount of content out there around those COVID laws, et cetera. And then we had to answer the second part of your question. Last year, a board meeting with an incredible board member of ours who comes from a sales and marketing background, we were talking about our org chart and she said, you don't have a marketing leader on your team. You are literally flying your plane without an engine. You have got to go get a marketing leader. And it was, it was a slap in the face that was justified and understandable, but we truly have not had, we did not have marketing in our organization until mid year last year. I'm trying to remember when Brandon started mid year. He hasn't even had a year in position yet. And to see one human, I truly can go to our reports and HubSpot and point to the month that he started and the impact that this human has had by actually putting intentionality behind our marketing is absolutely astronomical. So he's uh, he's a former sales leader who went marketing, so he gets the engine on both sides. He's a growth-driven marketer. He's phenomenal, and now he has a whole team around him, and it's a, a humbling lesson that I should have hired that quite a bit earlier than I did. That makes that makes sense. So that means that you had COVID happen for, what, about a year and a half, two years before you made this hire? Yep, yep. And so what what does that look like? Because if you're not having marketing at the time, is it just all hands on deck? Everyone's kind of scraping things together. And did, yeah. did you have a blog? Did you have content marketing? Like how, how did all of a sudden the inbound come? Or was it just people were searching for some type of solution and there are just not that many competitors out there? So you kind of luck, lucked out there. A little bit of everything. We didn't have any campaigns, any AdWords, anything that, you know, we, kind of shake your head and say, how in the world did we not? And we have the advantage that HR buyers are incredibly, wonderfully incestuous. So there's a tremendous amount of backdoor conversations and referrals that happen on boards and groups and forums and all types of things. And to your point, there's just not a lot of options out there, especially for companies that are looking to do leave differently. So it caught on from a kind of guerrilla marketing standpoint and, and ground up pretty quick. But that being said, I mean, those sales in the early years were slow comparative to now. It was, it was a long, slow trog through, and it was very much one and two salespeople and three salespeople and then four and all cold outbound. You got to fish, you got to get your own leads and you got to close them and a long road. <laughs> How, how much in the, in those kind of early days, sales hires, sales hires made, she obviously has a second hire, then you go to the next couple of people. How involved are you still in that, in sales? Very, very. So I support the revenue team of our organization, which consists of sales, marketing, and customer success with our renewals. So those are my quote unquote direct reports still as a CEO. We have not only one-on-ones, but I'm involved in team meetings. Revenue is the oxygen of our organization. So whether or not they're in an org chart orienting to me or not, I will always be really involved with those leaders. And we are incredibly data-driven, which I'm so appreciative and I'm so grateful for. So we analyze every way, shape, and form you can of not only the pipe and the health of the pipe, but we also have our AE scorecard. And as a people leader for 20 years, I'm, I love sales because you can see very clearly without question the performance of, of an account executive at any given t- moment in time and you can see 
you're not moving them through the funnel fast enough. You're not closing it. Like we can, we know where the blockage is. And so we've parted ways with probably three or four account executives because they're simply just not closing deals. And that's just a very black and white job clarity expectation that, that we're very clear about. Like we can't wait for you to be proficient. We need you to close deals. And that's something that we're very bullish on. So I want to I want to come back and touch on the metrics driven piece because that's that's a very special place in my heart. But I want to talk a little bit about this AE role. And it, are mm-hmm. these full cycle AEs? Do you have SDRs? I know they're supposed to in the early days you you kind of had to hunt a, as well as as a kill what you eat. How is it set up today? No SDRs. We've never had SDRs talked around it, potential, never actually pulled the trigger on that. We just this last quarter actually switched our outbound to 100% marketing outbound. Previously, as I mentioned, it was every AE was accountable for their own territory and their own campaigns, their own hunting. But now we have completely moved all of our outreach to our marketing engine. And so the AEs are receiving qualified deals and it's up to them to get them to closed. So far, so good. That's resulting in quite a bit more in the, in the pipeline and our marketing team is getting better and better and better at making sure those are qualified deals that are getting passed off to sales. The other avenue that AEs are receiving is from our partnerships. So the world that we operate in is very close with benefit brokers. And when a benefit broker hands off a deal, we round Robin through our account executives and they're able, those are everyone's favorite deals because they close the fastest. They're a very warm lead and, and we love any benefit broker deals, but. What, what was the thought process of transitioning all of that to marketing? It was really led by our VP of marketing. We sat in a war room, myself, my sales leader and my marketing leader. And we thought, you know, this isn't efficient. This isn't the best use of our account executives time, especially without an SDR. So there was so much efficiency loss at the top end of the funnel in disqualifying, in managing the campaigns. We moved tools and that was a huge shift in how they did their job. And it just wasn't ultimately resulting in the sales that we needed, which was our number one goal in terms of protection. So that was very much led by our marketing leader who had the domain expertise and lived experience to say, look, I can take all of these leads Here's how I can plug them into an automation engine. Here's how we can get over the hump of having, you know, we sit on a Google suite and there's a cap on number of outbounds you can do every day. So we were getting our AEs kicked out of Google every day. And we were able to circumvent that by moving all of this over to, to HubSpot and having the marketing team lead that. That makes sense. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. What talk to me a little bit more about this, this, the AEs that you hire, like how is the profile changed? Cause I would imagine that the hiring profiles have shifted quite a bit. Obviously now that things have been moved to marketing, that even changes once more again, the, the hiring or the, the AE profile, like walk me through, what does your hiring process look like? And, and do you have a scorecard? Do you have a, like, how, how do you know if you're hiring the right person or not? Yeah, we've had a couple lessons learned in that regard. In that early days, we had a hypothesis of B2B selling is pretty transferable. If they have HR tech, that's even better. If they've got legal or compliance background, it can speak to some pretty nuanced intricacies of the world of legislation, even better. Come to find out, that's not exactly as much of a pattern match as we thought it would be. So we've seen incredible variability around the most successful AE's backgrounds 
for instance, our top performer right now, without question, she's top of the, the sales success scorecard every single quarter. She comes from selling hotels, high-end hotels. So it's not what we thought in terms of who would be the most successful. It really has come down to, and what we're currently operating is the relational aspect of it and understanding their communication ability for something that is in incredibly complex. And that really inherently, my belief is you have to be interested. You have to be interested in what we're doing. And that, that inauthenticity gets shows. Oh my gosh. Absolutely. We, we had an AE who came from Cutco selling actually a little interview, probably one of the best interviews I've ever done. Great results in past lives and just didn't really give a shit about our space. And it showed and it didn't, didn't last. So I don't yep. necessarily look to what is your pedigree, what is your resume, and I really look more to the human connection side of things. Our HR and people buyers are high relational individuals. I mean, that's why they got into the domain that they're in, right. and they look for that in our conversations, and they recognize it often. One, one attribute that I look for in every client that I've ever helped with in hiring is always curiosity. And if mm. you are not curious about the space and you are not curious about the problem, you could be a fantastic sales rep. But yeah. if you just don't really care about that, yeah. it will come out Yeah, every single time. I love that. Yeah, we, have, we don't do values here at Tilt. We very intentionally do virtues, an active demonstration of what we believe to be a tilter and be curious like is one of our virtues. So you're speaking yeah. our language. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. I want to touch a little bit about your brokers. So that's a whole new channel. So you've been doing outbound for a while. You've had some really good success with it. That machine seems like it's starting to work. Your sales leader, that is that is their background. They came in with their playbook. They, you've obviously been able to kind of tweak it, hire more people, plug more people in, and it's working. Yep. And all yep. of a sudden, you bring in this separate channel. That's a huge lift from marketing, content, supportive materials, like maybe customer success or some kind of support for that specific channel. Like, walk me through, how did you even like get to that? Why was it the right timing? What, what mistakes did you make? That type of thing. They came to us. So it even became apparent that we need to get ahead of these brokers because we were always reactionary and we were, we were being pinged and pulled and, and quite honestly, the competitive spirit in us, and I say us, meaning me and my entire revenue team, we're all very competitive in spirit, learned that some of our competitors did have a partnership arm and we're doing this proactively. So a little bit of a fire under our ass of we've got to get our shit together and figure out how we get on the other side of this. So it was last year that we promoted one of our top AEs into the BDM partnerships role specifically and intentionally. And then to your point, we built the plane as we flew it to be, I mean, very transparent. It was what do we need for collateral and what does our outbound motion look like and how do we measure success in this role? Come to find out the broker landscape is enormous. It is much farther of a target or bigger of a target market than we ever, ever imagined. So it was a bit of, okay, understanding the landscape, where are we playing? What are we operating in? What are the pain points for brokers? How do we go about similar playbook to what we did with our buyers in our, in our sales engine and a lot of wonderful brokers who partnered with us and helped us figure that out as we go. And, and, and as we've gone and we provide such a differentiator for those brokers 
there was clear whiff them for them as well. They wanted us to be there and be ready and to this day continue to. So a lot of mutually beneficial relationships. But again, I, I go back to the success we've had in that realm and I really attribute a lot of it to excellent communication and excellent relationship building skills by my BDM partnership team. They are just wonderful humans who know how to connect quickly and authentically and they're, they're crushing it. They're crushing it. Has, so now that the, this side of the channel started to build what, today, mm-hmm. what does that look like from, from a team and maybe a revenue component? Is it, is it 50, yep. 50 on people or is one side kind of more heavy than, than the other now? So 40% of our go-to-market engine is, is partnerships and inclusive of brokers. 30% is inbound referrals and 30% is still outbound cold outreach. Okay. So it's actually like a, a fairly healthy balance. Yeah. But it's interesting how the broker channel is taking over. Exploded. And we've talked to companies farther ahead of us in maturation, and they're in the 80 to 90% realm in terms of their engine coming from partnerships and brokers. So, Do you see long-term that being more of the, more of the channel? Or do you, like, what, what are you thinking? It's, it's potential is, is the cop-out answer to that because... <laughs> We are serving, by and large, an SMB buyer, and SMB is typically left out. And when you really look at the brokers, they're managing a lot more of your enterprise clients and a lot more legacy providers. So we really have a a heart, really, for the SMB category and don't want to forget about them as we scale. So will it be that much of our engine, potentially? I'd like to see just more of a diversification and clarity around how the product is showing up for these different segments, as opposed to eclipsing segments altogether. Yep. That makes sense. Walk me through, I want to, I want to dig into the metrics piece. Cause that's one of my, what's one of my favorite pieces is when you look kind of when you, you use HubSpot, you use it for both marketing and sales. Yep. What are some of the kind of the KPIs or what are some of the metrics that you look at that kind of assign or tell you the health of the business that you really look to be your drivers? Yep. We look at ACV, days to close, conversion rate, and then at a high company level. And then when we get into marketing KPIs, we're looking at marketing driven pipeline and marketing driven revenue, similar with partnerships. And then when we look at AE performance, we're getting more granular in terms of days in each stage of the pipe. So how long are they sitting in negotiating, scoping, closing, et cetera. And we're also able to see ACV for our AEs. We're starting to get better at close lost reasons and quantifying what some of those look like, disqualifying reasons. Just the data that we, I would say in the last six to eight months have set ourselves up to start to ingest and make sense of has been night and day compared to flying blind now in hindsight that I look backwards. Our AEs, we have really nice complementary skills. So one of my people operations and operational background components that I brought to the table is I don't want my leadership team to be pattern matching everyone on there or in their organization to be the same. Number one, I think there's a lot of bias that comes into that, but also it's just not intelligent. So you can't have all AEs that are excellent at time to close, or you can't have all AEs that just swim in the highest ACB. They have really complementary skills that they're helping each other as a team to level up. And we've identified those and we've been loud about them. So we have one AE that when the quarter starts, 
her deals don't exist. She gets everything in her pipe and closes in the same quarter, and she's phenomenal at it. She's just the speediest AE we have. And we have another that has the highest percent to close. So sharing, what are they doing, and how do we help each other level those skills up across the board? What, that That is fascinating to me what like what what are some of those that like how can you have one person who is really really fast to close and and other people who are not and they're just like okay higher higher quality or higher close rates yeah. can, can you share any of the the secrets without any proprietary information yeah i don't even know that there are really secrets it's all right let's let's keep peeling back the layers or asking the five whys what's your response yeah. rate like when you're when your leads are asking you questions. What are we waiting on any sort of red line or MSA or security reviews on our end? Is that blocking the time to close? Is it that your follow-up cadence in your individual AE purview, you're not doing it fast enough? I mean, we have AEs that are very emphatic about after this many days, I send a touch after this many days. I send. And it's just, it's discipline and rigor in the craft that they all take their own spin on it, but we can show in the results, hey, this actually works really, really well. So you should consider integrating this into your approach. We don't have, and actually we had a recent investor point this out to us. We don't have individuals on our sales team who come from Salesforce, who come from the big blue chip brands, who have that type of pedigree, for lack of a better word. And that causes some pause. But my rebuttal to that is, Number one, I'd always take a hungry, scrappy, figure it out, gritty individual pretty much anywhere in my organization than I would overpaying 3X for a pedigree. And we have the results. Again, sales is the easiest domain in my organization to measure success. So I just don't buy it. I don't. Yeah. I don't. When did you, so you had HubSpot pretty early on, I know. When, mm -hmm. when did you really start to track and measure everything? We hired a sales operations teammate just about a year ago. And that's truly when it happened. She put okay. systems, data, analytics, making sense of it. And she continues to be, it's one of those hires that you look back and say, how did we ever do this before she was here? Right. So, bef so before that, were you, were you metrics driven or was it kind of a little bit fluffy? Oh, it was definitely a little bit fluffy. I mean, we knew what we were closing we knew the ACB, we knew how many days it was taking on average to close, but the level of Intel we have now, we had no idea. Yeah. It's interesting. It's one of the things that I, I personally talk about all the time. I, I always think that they're outside of the head of sales. There's always two major roles that I always think people need is one is like a sales ops or rev ops, however you want to define it. And then mm -hmm. some type of product marketing. So the support of, uh, of the sales team, but that mm -hmm. sales ops piece is the, like the, the lift that they do that you don't necessarily see all the tiny little details and the little organization things like, and then just the overall confidence in the numbers is it, it, it escalates pretty, pretty insane. It's, it's absolutely incredible. I share with you right now as we're coming up to the end of Q1, the ability for her to retrospectively understand, okay, what did we formulate in terms of anticipated close this quarter based on probability to close in the quarter at the stage that they're at, at the ACV? I mean, she has so many criteria that she's continuing to tweak. And now we have another way that we're going to look in Q2, lay that formula over Q. I mean, it's, it's phenomenal. When you look at forecasting being probably one of the hardest jobs we have to do, she's getting us as close to perfect as I think we can ever expect. It's yep. amazing. It's amazing. Yeah, that makes sense. 
What what would you can can you point to one or two things uh, as far as just like bets that you make that really just absolutely help scale revenue, help scale sales? I think that that's a that's a good question. I don't know that I we try so much, right? We're always tweaking and experimenting. One one foundational approach to the work that we do that we don't bend on is we're truthful and maybe that's the wrong verbiage, but very honest in what we sell. So I've, I've now talked to enough other founders and sales leaders to know that there's this very common oversell phenomenon in the world of sales of, yeah, yeah, that feature's coming, that functionality's coming, but I'm going to just go ahead and sell it now because our contract's so great and delightful. And then you pass off to implementation and turns out we're starting off on the wrong foot from the get. Right. That's not something that we've ever done because it just truly doesn't feel good in our gut. So it's hard, really hard for our AEs to say, you know what, we don't have that yet and we're not going to have it for two more quarters. And that's going to mean we're going to lose that deal. But to put the pressure and expectation on the rest of the team to deliver on those promises is just not a good business. And if the communication is, hey, it's currently on the roadmap for two more quarters and the buyer's like, awesome, I'm good for that and I'm willing to sign up for it, knowing roadmaps tend to shift and change and iterate, then cool, we're all on the same page. But I don't think that, at least I've heard, that's not necessarily common everywhere. You sell yeah. you sell in the, the future as opposed to what's mm -hmm. right now and that's yep. just dangerous. It is. It is very dangerous. So on the... On the flip side, so if that is such a great bet that you've made that, that helps scale revenue, let's flip that around. When you look back and you think about whether it's today or years ago, what are some of the mishaps or mistakes and things that maybe you wish you could take back or, hey, I'd do differently, one or two that you've done as far as building out either, it could be sales, it could be go to market, it could be anything on the kind of the, the revenue side of the house. Yeah, we, on the flip side, but similarly themed to what we have done, what we have learned painfully is we'll figure it out in a high friction, non-scalable way. And we're, we're open about all of that, but there are certain larger contracts, a couple in particular that we've said, Hey, they need this functionality to exist. It's not going to happen in the product, but we can do it, you know, vis-a-vis -vis humans in the short term and we'll just get it done. Did not work. It did not work painfully on either side and eventually those logos churned. And while there's been a lot of our evolution that, you know, do it high friction in a non-scalable way first, learn what you need to learn and then put it into the product. That's how we've done a tremendous amount of our product development. But when it comes to high contracts that implicate our team pretty heavily and take a big lift, we've learned the hard way that's typically not worth it, not only from you know, it's great ACV or a multi-year deal, but the reputational risk and the morale hit that we take, it, it's just in hindsight, not worth it. Yeah. No, I, I, I can see that. I mean, I, I think you make the mistake enough times and you're like, you kind of learn and you're like, yeah. well, it's just the, the ripple effects of all the pain and frustration and ultimately energy that you have to use is it, it starts to grow. That's, that's yeah. a good one. When you look at the team today, how, how is the team structured today is it do you have an an smb team and a an enterprise team in market team like 
What what did that evolution look like? At, at, at what was it a revenue thing? Was it a number of people thing? Was it an inbound number of leads to be able to create this? Like, how did you figure out how to design? You know, from the early days up to where it is today, because you have what about ninety hundred people or so? Ninety, just about, yeah. Yeah. And comparatively, we still have a very small revenue org. So we have a VP of sales and a VP of marketing. The VP of sales has a team of six and the VP of marketing has a team of four. The six inclusive of the sales ops that I mentioned, partnerships and AEs. And then the marketing, we have content and social. So the evolution of what we've we've tried a lot, right? We've tried SMB and mid-market. We've tried territories. We've tried round robin. I would say the learning that we had is putting people in territories without a big enough pipe is deflating and is defeating. So we've broadened the territory quite a bit now, and we've reformatted the SMB and the mid-market to be smaller. So one, for instance, one AE has mid-market right now, has these larger ACVs, and the lion's share of the AEs are staying in the small because she's proven to be the best. She's the one I referenced earlier. She's where we want our big contracts sitting and, and talking to. The intention is we promote more of those AEs into that space, but they need to earn it because losing a deal on something that we could have done different at 50K versus 5K hurts quite a bit more. So that's where the lion's share of those AEs are. And again, looking at the scorecard to show that they're ready to be promoted to those larger. We don't directly target enterprise yet. That is something that we've been preparing ourselves foundationally in the organization and with the product to be able to intentionally go after. But similar to what we were talking about with partnerships, it's a whole different ballgame. So we're not naive to the fact that we're going to have to really look at both sales and marketing collectively and figure out if we're going to go fish marketing, we're going to need different people on the team. We're going to need a whole different approach to that. And internally, you know, we need to have enterprise ready from a support standpoint, implementation, et cetera. So that's not a small feat. We're aware of that. And we have that in our mind's eye for later this year, or early next year. Now that's fabulous to hear. Cause a lot of times I hear we're going to the enterprise tomorrow. <laughs> And I, I just shake my head. That makes a lot of sense. Any, any last parting wisdom words, any, anything that you think that would be helpful to share with the audience, any key learnings that you've kind of had over the last, you know, five, six years of, of building tilt. You know, as much as I'm a raving fan and student of the revenue world, I continue to tell myself one of the first lessons I learned in, in how to be an entrepreneur, it's don't build something people don't want. And that has stayed with me through all the ups and downs and ensuring that I'm not putting our sales team in a position to try to put lipstick on a pig. We're truly building a tool that solves a real problem and empowering them to do what they do best in that. So that is something I hold my team very, very accountable to is this has got to be solving a problem first, and then we can put the bells and whistles on it second. How do you, how do you define if that is a true problem or is it maybe a symptom of a problem or it's a smoke screen of a problem, is there some type of a process that you have? Cause now you're much bigger. It's not just you talking to every single one of these clients mm -hmm. and prospects. Is there something that you have to be like, okay, if we're going to build this or if we're going to message it in a specific way that you're like, okay, we've really hit a problem versus something else. Cause obviously priorities reasons. Yeah. Prior prioritization, bane of my existence. I think the best, answer to that is retention. So having our NRR for last year average around 110% to me sends the signal that 
we're, we're doing something right for them to renew and to renew up. That's the easiest answer to the question. I think when we layer that same question on the prioritization of what to build next or how do we create even a stickier product, again, we're getting more intelligent around understanding the cost of delay and pulling the information from our sales engine of what are we leaving on the table by not having this functionality and just introducing far more rigor and data-driven decision-making on the future of our product roadmap. Makes a lot of sense. While wrapping up here, and and Jen, this is awesome. I feel like I could probably talk to you for hours and hours and hours. I, I We could go on and on, but I, I won't. We'll, we'll have you on again. What would you leave with the audience? Favorite book, favorite resource that you recommend that's maybe helped you along your 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 journey or that you'd recommend for people who are kind of going through what a sim- similar path? Well, when I needed to learn what the hell it meant to be an entrepreneur, Brad Feld Library was my go-to. <laughs> what is a pro forma and how is that different than a P&L? So those are my foundational books and remain to this day to be my go-tos. One in particular resource that I'm very much a student of right now is called the nine lies of work and it is an introduction to basically calling bullshit on what the traditional workforce and workplace has always looked like so why performance reviews don't work and why feedback doesn't work and so it's a very provocative read but from someone who cut their teeth professionally in corporate america it's like a breath of fresh air so i'm loving that book a lot right now awesome i'll have to check that out i haven't i haven't read that one Jen, thank you so much. If if anybody out there is is interested, Leave is just extremely hella complex. There are over nine hundred permutations of Leave in the U.S. And check out Tilt. They're here to help the help help companies navigate the space, regardless of size. Go check them out. Jen, how do people get a hold of you? Twitter, LinkedIn, email. What, what what's the best way to get more of you? Yep. We're in all the places, but easiest is we're at hellotilt.com and I'm very active on LinkedIn. So Jennifer Henderson on LinkedIn, give me a shout. Wonderful. Jen, thank you so much. We'll have to have you on again. This has been awesome. Thanks for coming on. Yeah. See ya. That's it for this week's episode of From Start to Scale. Be sure to click that subscribe button and follow us so you don't miss our next episode. I'm Alex Newman. See you next time.